the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed, it is hour number two underway now, eight minutes past 10 o'clock on AM 1420. The answer, yes, it's 10.08 and Elizabeth Warren is still white. Uh, the 16th morning of the month of October in the year of our Lord 2018, I cannot say thank you enough to Peter Kersenow, <coughs> excuse me, for sitting in yesterday and doing what he described as two impossibly fast hours of the Bob France Authority. I asked him yesterday, I said, hey, Pete, uh, you know, thanks for doing that. That was awesome. I'm pretty sure you're probably going to want a break, right? Uh, I don't want to overwork you and overuse you. You've already donated enough of your time that could be done working on people's cases at your law firm or working for the uh, United States Commission on Civil Rights. I said, I'm sure you want to take Tuesday off, right? He couldn't email me back fast enough to say, I want my spot. <laughs> so Peter Kurtznow is back with us once again on AM 1420, The Answer. Good morning, Pete. How are you, sir? Bob, I'm doing great. Thanks very much for that splendid opportunity to talk to your listeners of the great people. 370 days to the 2019 World Series. I wish we could have a countdown for the Browns, but uh, a little bit of a hiccup. But one thing that wasn't a hiccup in terms of football performances, if your listeners hadn't seen the Saturday Plain Dealer Sports page. I saw a Dwight Clark like <laughs> from a super soft, a sophomore who had the four with four seconds remaining against the fourth ranked team in the state. He makes the game winning TD catch amazing. His name had him happened to be Jarrett France. I don't know wow. if he's any relation, but wow. uh, you know, really <laughs> I- remarkable. I was never going to do that on this program, but my goodness gracious, thank you. He will get a kick out of that hearing, uh, hearing you, uh, uh, talk of his exploits. That's the, it was, it was a great moment. It was a really well, that's, wonderful that's moment. Remarkable. Very proud I mean, of it. For those of us who've played high school football, to do something like that as a sophomore is an exceptional thrill. I think I had to wait until I was, a, well, 
Actually, my junior year, I had an interception return for a touchdown with a few seconds left. We beat Brexville. I think that's why Brexville Republican Party never invites me to come and speak to them. No, actually, I'm <laughs> But uh, that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The legendary uh, Jovedini's team uh, that uh, we used to play all the time. But in any event, uh, congratulations to Jarrett. That was a spectacular catch. Well, it was a great moment. And thank you. Thanks very much, Pete. I really do appreciate that. Uh, he had to go up for that one. It was, it was big. All right. Uh, what else is big? We got a lot of things to get into here, and I want to start with with Liawath. I, I I can't decide what my favorite nickname is. Focahannas Liawath, or yesterday I heard Tucker coin one, which I think was uh, fraud uh, fraudazuma, and that's another that's another <laughs> that's another solid uh, <laughs> remark. I, I mean, uh, Pete, she she releases this thing yesterday by way of the Boston Globe and on a little video. <clears throat> as if it vindicates her to, number one, have this DNA t- test done by a Stanford professor-slash-researcher who does not use actual Native American DNA to compare the sample to, used Peruvian and uh, I can't remember the other, a couple of other South American right, uh, countries. Colombian, right. Colombian, yep, right, correct. Anyway, he doesn't even use it, and, and even what he does use comes out that she could be as 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 much as one thousand or excuse me one one thousand twenty fourth uh native American which translate to point zero zero point zero nine percent of her when a landmark study that was done just four years ago in twenty fourteen indicates that the average european American has roughly zero point one eight percent Native American blood in them. So in other words, I am more Native American than she is. You are more Native American than she is. Anybody whose parents trace back to Europe have more Native American blood than 0.09% Liawatha does. Yeah. Well, uh, a couple things about that. First is that, um, as you indicated, she's probably the, the whitest woman in America. But the reason why she was able to do that, Bob, is because she knew that the press, the media, would immediately, until such time as fact-checkers came around from the Republican or the conservative side, but they would immediately support her position, and they did. They, they did. try to say that this vindicated her. The Boston Globe says vindication here. Um, uh, truly am- amazing. And it's part of what has been coined by James Taranto, the old Wall Street Journal uh, writer, as the Taranto principle or the Taranto effect, and that is that liberals live in this bubble where they constantly self-reinforce. The media tells Democrats how smart they are and how virtuous they are. Democrats talk to themselves. Professors talk to Democrats. They all live in this little bubble. And then when that bubble is pierced, they look absurd. And that's what happened with Pocahontas, Pocahontas, whatever you want to call her. But one of the things that's interesting about this, uh, you know, the fact that we're actually talking about whether or not she's one 1,024th uh, Cherokee or Indian, how you could ever come to that determination is ridiculous. As you indicated first, it didn't have anything to do with Native American DNA. It had to do with South American DNA. But it just so happens I have a family member, a daughter, who got a Ph.D. in genetics from Harvard, of all places, the same place where uh, Pocahontas was teaching law. She'll tell you right away that all of those kinds of genetic tests need to be thrown out the window because if you are rigorous about these things, and you don't even have to be rigorous, Bob, anybody with a brain can think about this. You could go back for uh, Pocahontas, they went back something like 16 generations, but because human beings move around, migration patterns, intermarriage patterns, it is a virtual impossibility to ascertain with any degree of certainty whether or not somebody's one sixteenth uh, Cherokee, one. 
50th Italian, that is virtually impossible to do. You might be able to say that someone, it appears as if, someone has relatives who may have been in a certain geographic region of the world for a period of time. Maybe they were vacationing there, who knows what. But this is the height of absurdity, but I love it. I love the absurdity of it because beyond Pocahontas, it really strikes a dagger at the heart of the only thing progressives have right now, and that's identity politics. They have absolutely no policy prescriptions. Listen to them. Except for universal health care, which will bankrupt the entire world practically, they can't come up with any ideas other than you should vote for us because you are black. You should hate Kanye West because he likes Trump. You should, whatever it might be, it's all contingent upon your immutable characteristics given by God, not whether or not you're a good person, whether or not you work hard, whether or not you have, uh, t- have paid your taxes, whether or not you've got a mortgage to pay that you're concerned about or sending your kids to school. They've got no policy prescriptions with respect to that. The fact that somebody who might, let's, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that this is an accurate test and that she might be one 1,024th Cherokee. Okay. And that's not what it shows by the way, but right. let's say it does. That, frankly, tells us that the whole matter of identity politics, affirmative action, and racial preferences is the nuttiest thing imaginable, and it is essentially anti-American. You know, when you get the Al Gore's of the world that uh, reverse the slogan of E Pluribus Unum to say, you know, out of one, many, that gives you... In uh, an insight into the mindset of progressives. They don't think that we are Americans. They think that we are blacks, that we are Hispanics, that mm-hmm. we are transsexuals, whatever it may be. And I think this has made that type of formulation so absurd. It's highlighted it that finally all of these manipulations that we've seen in college campuses and elsewhere have been brought full force in front of the American people so we can see that it is, in fact, absurd. I think the Democrats, they've overreached so many times in the last several months with Kavanaugh, with issues related to the border, with issues related to crime, uh, and now they're starting to make individual candidates, individual alleged front runners for the 2020 uh, nominations, such as Senator Spartacus and now Senator Pocahontas. <laughs> I mean... Hey, he might be one twenty one 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 thousand twenty fourth uh, Spartacus. We don't know. We could be. He's, he's going to find. He's going to have a DNA test. Shows he's got. Greek I think. Cancer. I think Spartacus was a Thracian. So uh, we might have to but check back right. and he's see. Thracian. If he... That's true. That's exactly right. <laughs> Uh, Pete, so so from a political standpoint, let me go to the political part of this. Essentially, what I took from yesterday was Elizabeth Warren's announcement that she's running in 2020. There's, I mean, because there's no other reason for her to do this now or at any time to actually address this unless it's I've got to get this thing behind me so that it doesn't become an issue when I'm running. i got to be able to prove, yes, I was right. When, no matter how small I was right, I was right. I am Native American, blah, 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 because this is her this is her path forward in 2020. She can't have this hanging over her with Trump calling her Pocahontas for the next uh, you know two years. Yeah, that's unfortunate for her. It's, it's She's made a giant miscalculation in my mind because she hasn't put this behind her. She has now put a spotlight on this. And a number of Democrats, as you've probably seen, have come out and said, why did she do it at this time? It really steps on our midterm message, but also steps on her nomination message. Now you've got Pocahontas and Spartacus. I mean, 
they happen to be seeking the Democratic nomination at perhaps the worst time against the worst candidate when they have this kind of, when you've got Spartacus and Pocahontas having this kind of appellation hanging on to them, because if there's one guy who can brand them unmercifully and will do so, it is Donald Trump. They will look silly. I, I think she has maybe, I won't say irreparably, but I, I think it's close to irreparably damaged her prospects for the Democratic nomination, although the Democrats have done so many bizarre things in the last three months, I can't say that definitively that she has excluded herself from potential nomination. I think Kamala Harris is probably smiling in her sleep right now, knowing that she has been, meaning uh, Elizabeth Warren, has hurt herself grievously. And Spartacus, of course, he is a clown character right now. He can't get the nomination. You know, there's an old saying that everybody, no matter how great you have been, can be described or their life can be described in one sentence. Even the the great figures such as Lincoln or Jefferson or Washington, Washington, father of the country, Lincoln freed the slaves. No matter how many millions of things they may have done that's great, they all can be reduced to one sentence. And now you've got... With respect to Cory Booker, he's Spartacus. With respect to um, Elizabeth Warren, she's Pocahontas or Pocahontas or whatever. I, I tend to go with Pocahontas because the most powerful man in the world calls her that, and that's going to stick. Yeah, the only reason I say Pocahontas is obviously to point out that she's a fake po- Pocahontas. And the other thing is, while the president has not drawn the scorn of the Cherokee Nation or any of the other tribes uh, for using the name Pocahontas, some just who are always, you know, the haters, who are always looking for reason to criticize, are saying, by doing this with Elizabeth Warren, you are truly actually mocking the real Pocahontas, who was a real person. So, uh, you know, so I, I just like to, I do the Liawath of the Pocahontas, and I will embrace Fraudazuma, too, because I just think it works. Uh, <laughs> Pete, I want to get a time out here. We'll come back, and I want to talk a little bit about those midterms with you as we continue right here on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, 1025, we continue the Bob France Authority. Peter Kirsten, I was our guest after guest hosting for this program yesterday. I uh, really appreciate you putting in the time, Pete. I, 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 I do want to go to the midterms, but I think I'm going to wait until after the break, the bottom of the hour break, since you're going to give us one more segment after that. Uh, and let me hit uh, the, the Hiawatha thing a moment again, because um, – I want to tie this to the affirmative action policies at Harvard. Harvard gleefully reported that uh, Elizabeth Warren was their first woman of color on their faculty, I believe is what it was, which is startling. She actually checked the box, Native American. She, uh, uh, I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, This is actually from the University of Pennsylvania. This is from 1990, January 24th, 1990. She was reg- or I'm sorry, she was an employee at the University of Pennsylvania, and it says ethnicity, previous context or content. She che- had checked C, which is white Caucasian. Current content, she checked A, which is Native American. Okay. Now, I want to use this because of the Harvard story that's going on right now. There is a lawsuit that's been filed against Harvard for their blatant affirmative action in discriminating against Asians who want to go to Harvard. You've got extraordinarily highly qualified Asian students who can't get into Harvard excuse me, because they're Asian and because Harvard wants to diversify the campus. And so they're giving uh, freshman spots to far uh, inferior students who are black, Hispanic primarily, some white, but mostly black and Latino, 
uh, to to diversify and color up the Harvard campus. And these uh, you know way higher scoring uh, um, SAT and ACT Asian students are are being denied their place. So it, I guess my point to all of this is you got this going on with Elizabeth Warren. You got this going on at Harvard with these Asian students. The identity politics you talked about isn't just in politics. The identity politics that the left plays is kind of festering all throughout our society, including our educational systems. It is, and it's been doing so for quite some time. Um, you know, I wish, you know, one of these days, Bob, you have to have me on for a full hour to talk about this, because this is right, right in my wheelhouse. I've been dealing with uh, Name matters the day. related to racial preferences. Um, I'll, I'll email you. I have to look at my schedule, but um, I think we need to do it. Uh, your we'll listeners do it. are Absolutely. very good on these issues, and this is an important issue. It really goes to who we are as Americans, and I've been, as I say, I've been involved in this issue for at least 25 to 30 years on an active level. I know Ed Bloom, who is the, the person behind the lawsuit, and I've worked together on numerous other matters. Um, you know, he also brought or helped bring the uh, University of Texas case, the Fisher case. So he is um, somebody who works very hard on these issues, and we've studied these things intensely at the Civil Rights Commission. And I will just say a couple of things because there's so much to say about this. It's essentially wrong. But regardless of whether or not you think affirmative action is something that is a, an unalloyed good. That is, it's something that needs to be done so that we have a, an inclusive society, as they say, and we give opportunities to everybody. Um, whether or not you believe that it is in violation of the law or if it conforms with the law, I happen to think it's a clear violation of the law, regardless of the fact that the Supreme Court said, well, okay, under certain prescribed circumstances, you can do it. But if you don't care about those principles and you only care about the utility of it, ostensibly it's done to, as I said just a moment ago, and as the universities say, this is their mantra, that diversity and inclusion benefits. There's educational benefits that devolve from that. First of all, there's absolutely no evidence of that. That supposedly was adduced during the old Grutter old. It's the University of Michigan cases from the early 2000s, which really set the template, the Grutter and Graz cases, but no such evidence was ever adduced. But more importantly, we do have evidence as to the real world impact of affirmative action. As I said, when we have more time, I'll uh, disaggregate the data. But let me just say this that because of what's known as the mismatch effect, affirmative action does demonstrably or, or does demonstrable harm to the intended purported beneficiaries, meaning black and Hispanic students. And I mean it's egregious harm. You will find that students admitted pursuant to affirmative action are far more likely to be, for example, Black law students admitted through affirmative action. If, if they weren't admitted through affirmative action, these stats don't apply. But black law students admitted through affirmative action are four times more likely to flunk the bar exam, four times more likely to fail law school, and 50% of them collect within the bottom 10% of respective law school classes. There's a whole host of maladies that emanate from those statistics. And that's just one stat. It does demonstrable harm because of the cascade effect of taking somebody from a substandard school with substandard grades and all of a sudden putting them up against some of the most 
the best performing and most prepared students at an elite university, and they can't compete. It's like saying, Pete, do you want to go and play in the NBA against LeBron James? I'd love to do so, but I'm going to get killed. I am ill-prepared for that. I might be able to compete at a level. It has nothing to do with my, my natural athletic ability, although I'm, it's, it's nowhere near LeBron James's, but I'm not prepared to do something like that. I haven't done the work to do something like that. Maybe that's not the best example, but you understand that if you come from a school, say, pick a school, but it's of a substandard school, and you've got to compete at a Harvard against people who went to Exeter or Amherst, you're probably not going to do that well. You're not up to speed. Nothing wrong with you necessarily. Maybe you could compete if K through 12 was sufficient, or if you had an adequate family background that emphasized learning and reading, such as many Asian families do. Don't want to be stereotyped right. about this, but that's in no, fact no. It, well, you know, it is it is a stereotype, but it's it, for a reason. They take studying and they take education far, 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 far more seriously than most Americans do, and that is just a part of their culture. And it's not one to be mocked. It is one to be envied. It is one to be praised. It is one to be uh, you know extolled because it is a fantastic virtue. They take it very seriously, much more so than many peoples and cultures around the world. Peter Kirsten, I'll back with us right after this on AM 1420, The Answer. Ten thirty-five. Now the Bob France Authority continues. We've got one more segment from Peter Kirsten. I was putting in a lot of extra work for us. Pete, shouldn't you be writing the uh, uh, third um, uh, installment of the uh, of the Target Omega series right about now? It's uh, done. I finished it last night. I just have to do some Are you kidding? Uh, additional. No, no, it's done. I'm, and the fourth book is three-quarters of the way done. But I just finished the third one uh, last night. I've got to do a little bit of editing to it. I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be the best by far. It goes a little bit different direction. Uh, same genre, but different characters. It's called The Black Russian, and it involves a defector from uh, Russia who comes to the United States. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun for uh, all the readers out there. Pete, I don't, I don't know if I should ask this on the radio or not, so you can just tell me to shut up and mind my, my own business if you want to, but um, that has a very familiar ring to it, that storyline. <laughs> One of these days, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll set aside a segment for that, too, Bob. Oh, okay. also, I want for your listeners out there, I mentioned uh, Brexville. I am going to be out in Brexville next week at the Cuyahoga Valley Republicans. Going to be at the community center out there, 7 o'clock on next Wednesday, October 24th. At 7 o'clock next Wednesday, October 24th. So come on out there. And despite the fact that uh, I did beat Brexville, not single-handedly, it was my great football team, but I did beat <laughs> Brexville <laughs> my junior year with an interception at the last minute. Come on and see me. You can boo me if you want. <laughs> I don't think they're going to be holding that grudge against you at this point, because that was what, 1940, yeah, it, that was back in the 42? Yeah, it was, it was a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> All right, it wasn't um, anything near as spectacular what Jared France did. <laughs> oh, no, enough of that, enough of that. That kid's head's going to be blown up enough already. Uh, that was an amazing spread in the plane dealer, though. He was uh, he, he was shocked to see that one. Okay, Pete, um, first of all, but one more thing on the books, just so everybody knows. Uh, Target Omega, the original, is in paperback right now. Uh, you can get the Second Strike, which is the next uh, installment in the series. Uh, that one's in hardback right now. Uh, just go to Amazon.com and find that. You, explain this to me. You said you just finished the third one last night, and the fourth one is three-quarters of the way written. How, right. how, how does that work? Uh, you know, I don't yeah, have that kind like of a this. mind. How are you, how are you writing the, the, the next uh, you know, book uh, when the third one still isn't completed yet? 
Yeah, I was writing them both at the same time. Actually, the fourth book originally was supposed to be the third one, because it's part of the original Mike Guerin series. But then I just got this idea in my head about the Black Russian series, which is same genre, but different characters. They're very similar. But uh, I got this idea in my head, and I just kind of fell in love with it and started writing it, and it took over. And I started writing it a lot faster than the fourth book, or which would have been the third book, and I've decided to switch the order. So it will be wow. the third one. It won't be coming out until next year anyway, so they only publish one per year. I've been trying to tell them, you know, look, I can get these things out pretty quickly. I write in the evenings and on the weekends, and I don't have a life, uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> I, can, I can write them out pretty quickly. And, you know, my, my agent once asked, once asked me, how do you write so fast? And I said, it's fiction. I'm making this stuff up. <laughs> it's not like I'm writing a brief where I've got to footnote everything. I've got to have fidelity to the facts and the law. This is stuff I'm just making up, and it's a sign of misspent youth. You know, if you spent your life watching <laughs> Bond movies and other things, you know, this stuff comes very easily to you. That's phenomenal. I uh, cannot wait to see the the, uh, the third book, uh, The Black Russian. Okay, Pete, uh, let's talk about what's going to happen here on November 6th. And in fact, it, the voting is happening right now. I've been championing the idea of early voting for a long time uh, to, to people who are angry over what happened to Brett Kavanaugh. We talked about this some last week, uh, and I hope it's happening. I don't want people to kind of let time and distance um, lessen their outrage and their anger and, and to go and vote Republican just to tell Democrats you can't do what you just did to make sure that they pay a price at the poll. Uh, so I hope people are early voting while that is all still fresh in their mind and they're not just going to be dissuaded by the time uh, November 6th comes around. Um, according to multiple polls and surveys, and we all know where they are right now, um, it, it looks like almost a coin flip that the blue wave is going to happen. In no way is it going to be a red wave. It's going to be a, either the break wall that I think you've talked about and kind of stemming it a little bit. We're going to lose some seats, but it's going to be a coin flip as to whether or not it's a big enough wave for them to take over the House, uh, that Republicans have been galvanized by everything that just happened. Is that your read on this? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I think that you know conventional wisdom uh, or historical uh, wisdom is that in a midterm election, the party out of power gains an average of 23 to 24 seats in the House, and that would flip it over to the GOP. Now, it's very narrow. Now, we've been hearing for months and months, of course, about the impending blue wave because of Democratic enthusiasm. What they didn't factor in was the real enthusiasm of Republicans for a variety of factors, but I think it culminated with and was further energized by the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. What's interesting is, and you probably saw this in the last day or two, uh, we saw that part of this blue blue wave theory was founded upon the alleged disparity in the generic ballot between Republicans and Democrats, where it looked like Democrats had a seven to eight point advantage, and that was predictive of maybe gaining as many as fifty seats. And the Democrats were rubbing their hands in glee, as was the media, but I repeat myself. But now, someone looked at it a little bit more closely. It is true that Democrats maintain approximately a six- to seven-point generic ballot lead overall for all all House seats. But then they drilled down and said, well, wait a minute, let's look at the seats where they are truly toss-ups, that are truly contested elections. And what they found there shocked them. And that is that the GOP actually has a one-point generic ballot advantage in the races that cr- truly count, in the races that could factor into flipping the House or not flipping the House. Wow. And the key there, Bob, also is, historically, if Democrats don't have a 4.2% generic lead, they have to have at least 
4.2 just to break even because their turnout is always lower. Republicans actually come out to vote. They're more responsible. You know, they, they are adults. They've got jobs. They've got things to take care of, and they actually chuck off the box and get it done. Whereas Democrats may tell you three weeks ahead of time, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm going, and then they just don't end up showing uh, to the polls. So they've got to have that 4.2 just to break even. With Republicans at plus one, that's a red zone, no pun intended, for Democrats. It could mean that in those contested elections, you won't see that blue wave, and it could be that the GOP... Uh, retains the House. I'm going to play it safe and say, well, look, I'm going to go by history, and I think that the Democrats have a chance of getting a narrow advantage in the House, but I think the momentum is clearly on the Republican side. Three weeks left to go, that's a, that's a lifetime, but I do think Republicans will maintain that momentum. I think there's a very good chance that we'll, we're going to be surprised again, as we were in 2016, Selena Zito, who has been very good in terms of prognosticating these kinds of things and what's going on on the ground, thinks that all of the predictions from mainstream media are false. She sees a sense, a momentum. The president has talked about it, how enthusiastic all these meetings have been, much more so than even 2016. It could mean something. And then here's the other thing. The surge right now is all in the Republican direction as evinced by what's going on in the polls to states. I mentioned a little bit of this uh, yesterday on the show, and I hopefully I can remember all of them, but just to give you one example, in Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn was behind Phil Bredesen up until two weeks ago. Now she's 14 points ahead, and I think that's the Taylor Swift effect. Um, then you've got one of the most astonishing ones is West Virginia, where Manchin had a double-digit lead over, I think it was Patrick Morrissey was the name. He now only has a one-point lead. That's extraordinary, but it, it tells you not so much that Manchin will lose, but where all the momentum is in these kinds of battleground states. Uh, uh, Martha McSally in Arizona was even with uh, Kristen Cinema. She was even. Now she has a three-point lead. In Missouri, Josh Hawley has a one-point lead over McCaskill, who just two weeks ago had an eight-point lead. North Dakota, Heidi Heidkamp is toast. She had a two-point lead just three weeks ago. She's now behind by 12. A lot of this has to do with Kavanaugh. But yep. races I hadn't even thought about. Florida. Uh, in Nevada, which was a toss-up state, a lot of people thought Dean Heller, the incumbent Republican, might lose. He now has a seven-point advantage. And this has all happened since the Kavanaugh confirmation. So that's where the momentum is. Beto O'Rourke, where Democrats have sunk tons and tons and tons of money in this dream of turning Texas into a blue state. Well, he was. He looked like he was hanging around, but now all of a sudden Ted Cruz has got a nine-point lead, and the Democrats have all, all but washed their hands of the prospect of taking uh, <clears throat> Texas. So Pete, things are looking good, but we have to maintain that momentum. Pete, let me ask about the un, uh, you know the unknowable right now, and that is this this ongoing you know uh, self destruction. I mean, they're shooting themselves in the feet over and over again, talking about, you know, here's Elizabeth Warren doing this ridiculous Pocahontas routine right now, taking away from their message. Um, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton have embarked on a tour. They're going to visit 13 uh, cities and, and talk about their lives in politics. And every time they sit down, Hillary has to find a way to defend Bill Clinton against uh, the Me Too movement for his rape of Juanita Broderick, for the... Uh, 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 unbelievably inappropriate sexual liaison with uh, Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office and all of these things. 
<laughs> excuse me, um, you've got Antifa uh, staging attacks against law enforcement and against innocent people in cities like Portland almost on the daily. You've got these harassing uh, situations in houses and, 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 and continuing threats of death uh, to, to uh, members of the Senate like Susan Collins. These are still going on. In fact, they're getting letters that they have to turn over to crime labs to see if there's anything, you know, poison, whether it be ricin or anything else that's uh, being contained in it. In other words, if they're going to keep up these unbelievably stupid tactics um, between now and November sixth, I, I guess you can't pull to that, right? But what is your gut as a you know as as an experienced, educated man and, and and you know and you know as knowledgeable as you are about American politics? That's got to have an impact between now and then, doesn't oh, it? Yeah, I think it has a big impact, and I think the uh, it's, again, it's partially a function of the Taranto effect, that is, Democrats are living in this bubble, it's self-reinforced by the media, that keep telling them how great they are, and they don't realize how bizarre and how despicable they look to, I'll use Kurt Schlick, I can't pronounce his name, is Schlichter. it Schlichter? Schlichter, okay, Schlichter yeah. I'll use his term of normal Americans. Normal Americans recoil at this stuff. They may not necessarily have a great affinity for Donald Trump or Republicans, but they know what they don't like, and what they don't like is what they see on television coming from the Democrats. But most normal Americans look around and they see the best economy in our, of our lifetimes. They see us winning on so many fronts, you name it. And they're asking themselves, where are the policy prescriptions coming from Democrats? We see them yelling and shouting really loudly, but they've never said what they're going to do to make my life better. And right now, what are they going to do? The, the economy is the best in history. Are the Democrats going to take us back to the Obama era? What are their prospects? What are they intending to do once they get power? Are they going to give nukes to Iran? We got rid of the Iran nuke deal. What are they going to do? Almost everything that, that Trump has done has been a reversal of Obama era uh, lunacy, and it's worked for us. We're winning. If you want to, and I'm not, this is not a campaign commercial, but the fact of the matter is, on a number of fronts, we are winning when we are at best treading water at best during the Obama era under democratic rule. So I think a lot of people are saying, I kind of like where we are right now. I will forgive Trump an errant tweet here or there if I think he's not acting presidential here or there. But my goodness, on so many levels, we are getting better as a country, and I want to keep that going. Yeah, and I, and I hope that is what this comes down to. You know, it, it's really weird. There's um, just to kind of buttress what I was talking about a moment ago. One of my friends on Twitter suggested uh, that the new slogan be "Mobs not," or excuse me, "Jobs not mobs," and that's the difference between the choices. No, legitimate, legit, legitimately look at the job growth, all the the positive things that you've talked about. Um, look at the job growth in this country. Look at the number of manufacturers who are growing. Look at all of the people whose wages are rising, and so on and so forth. And you know, record low unemployment, fifty-year uh, low for overall, record low. For for blacks, Hispanics, women, youths, and so on and so forth. That's what the Republicans offer you, jobs, as opposed to what the Democrats are, which is, again, we see over and over and over again mobs. And that's why I bring it up. I just hope voters are, say, are, are realizing, if you vote for Democrats, you are voting to, to give credibility to that style of behavior or you're voting to legitimize it you are voting to essentially um, embolden it and you're giving you know leadership positions committee 
leadership positions to the likes of Maxine Waters or Dianne Feinstein or, or, or Cory Booker or Kamala Harris. These people are going to have leadership positions in their respective, uh, well, I guess um, I said a couple of senators there too, but you understand the point if they only take over the House. But I don't want committees being led by some of these people who endorse and, quite frankly, who encourage the type of mob-like behavior that we're seeing around the country. Right. And Maxine Waters says, hunt down the Republicans wherever they are, get in their face, and they're going to be in charge? Right. This is, this, is a, this is a defining election. I know that's an overused term, but the differences between Democrats and conservatives I don't think has ever been as stark as it is today. And to a large extent, it's because of Democratic overreach and also Donald Trump being a different type of Republican, not backing down and being able to. He has a gift for highlighting the stark disparities, both in policy and in practice, between the Democrats and the Republicans. And I think not only does he have that gift, and that's his his style that works so well for him, it is rubbing off on other people. It is rubbing it off is. on Lindsey Graham and on Mitch McConnell and so many others who are, you know, who, may, who are afraid to do things, afraid to, to make bold statements and to take bold steps uh, on behalf of the people that they represent. And now they kind of see it works for the president. We're going to go ahead and take those steps, too. And that's, of course, what we have all been uh, wanting to see. Uh, Peter Kirsten, now thank you so much. Again, thanks for yesterday. Thanks for the kind words about my son. And thanks for the overtime today, my friend. I will talk to you again very soon. See you, Bob. You got it. I expect book five by Saturday. That's Peter Kirsten now right here on AM 1420. The answer. We'll get a timeout, check our traffic, come back in, try to squeeze in a couple of phone calls before the top of the hour on AM 1420. The answer. Ten fifty four. Now the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. i uh, got time for a few phone calls before the top of the hour. Don't forget, at 11 o'clock, we turn it over to Mike Gallagher, who will then turn it over to Dennis Prager, to Medved, to Secular, to Elder, and I can't promote Walsh very well. Uh, his never-Trumpism or his anti-Trumpism continues to plague my soul. Uh, let's go to who's been waiting the longest. I think it's Michael, and he's in Parma. You're on AM 1420. The answer. Hi, Michael. Go right ahead. Hi, Bob. How you doing this morning? Wonderful, sir. What's on your mind? I got a robocall from the Democratic Party of Cuyahoga County inviting me to uh, early voting. They had a party. This, it's already been done, but I, I have a recording of it off of my uh, voicemail. Bottom line, they made the statement on this voicemail that you do not need ID when you vote early. That's news to me. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, that's not true because I vote early all the time. And, uh, you know, over the last few years anyway of, of elections, my wife and I usually go on a Saturday at our local board of elections and they always ask for your ID to prove your address. I know. And I, so they, I, I so they give you the right ballot, you know, for your, for your member of Congress and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and, and your representative. So I, I've no, I've never heard of, of not needing an ID to vote early. Well, I talked to your producer, and I've got an, a WAV file I've made off of my uh, voicemail, off of my IP uh, phone system, okay. and I'll send it to him. If I was going to, yeah, 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 I was just going to say, I would be very much be interested in it. Maybe I can get somebody from the Democratic Party on to explain why it is they're telling people that, or perhaps maybe I can get somebody from the Board of Elections on, or perhaps maybe I can just get the Secretary of State on and find out exactly uh, why that yeah. kind of message is being allowed. Yeah, because that's that would seem to be uh, erroneous. Now, I do know, I will say this. 
to the best of my, and I've never experienced it because I always have my ID, but um, which most people do. 99% of the people who are normal in this world do. They carry their IDs, especially when they're going to vote or to cash a check or do anything else. But um, I, I do think there is something that says if you don't have an ID, they don't give you a regular ballot. They give you a provisional ballot. And then that provisional ballot is only counted after you prove uh, your location you know, with a utility. Maybe they also mean just that you can do it with a utility bill or something else that shows your address. Um, so, so there may be in a little, um, in a little wiggle room here for them to say you don't need an ID because you can do it with some certain other pieces of, uh, identifying information. But, but yeah, if you send it to me, I'll see if I can find anything out about it. Okay. All great. right, Michael. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate the phone call. Let me move onward now and talk to Jeff in Cleveland on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, Jeff. Go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I really think the Republicans are missing the boat on a very important point in this election. What's that it? is how Trump has demonstrated a very keen care for individuals. You know, when Romney was running against Obama, they said the biggest uh, failing of Romney was when the question was asked, he cares about people like us. Romney scored very, very low. Trump has gone out of his way to such an unbelievable extent to free the hostages in North Korea, to free this uh, pastor from Turkey, and putting the prestige and the leverage and the weight of the United States behind it, saying, we are not moving or budging until you free these people. And I think there are other examples that just don't come to mind. But to me, at such a stark contrast from Obama, when I remember there was a, a lieutenant, a Marine, who got uh, mistakenly caught in Mexico with a rifle, and he was in jail for a long time, I don't know. Yeah, 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 I do remember. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, sir. That's right. Yeah, and Obama did nothing. Right. And and whenever you hear Trump, too, talk at these rallies, it's the only time he sounds modest and gives other people credit. He always says, it's you guys, you know, when he's in the in those rallies. You know, it's like he does, all of a sudden he's not such a big braggart. He cares about the little guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why he connects. So I think that, you know, the Republicans always talk to people's heads. And the Democrats always talk to people's hearts, and especially voters. Well, I'll tell you what, Jeff, and I thank you for the call. I'm gonna, I gotta let you go here because I'm up against it. And then to the other people on hold, my apologies, I can't get to you because, well, you know why the music is playing and the show is over. But I'll say this about that: that's the one gift that President Trump truly has. Is even though he is a billionaire many times over, he does connect with the regular people much better than a guy like Mitt Romney, also a billionaire, has ever been able to do. And I think it's just part of his style, it's part of his speaking style that makes him able to do that. That's all the time that I've got. Gallagher's next on AM 1420 The Answer. See you tomorrow. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.